everybody. Welcome to Unprofessional. I'm one of your hosts, Dave Wiskus, joined by, uh, I'm not going to say the most attractive man I've ever met, but definitely <laughs> in the top 80, Mr. Lex Friedman. Hi, Dave. It's great to be here with you again. <laughs> We're going like super uh, Mr. Rogers here. I don't know if you do this. <laughs> We're also joined by uh, this week's special guest slash co-host, Clayton Morris. Hey, guys. What are you referring to? Best looking man. It didn't stop when you said you didn't meet me yet. So I was really, I was about to be really flattered and realize I haven't met you yet. <laughs> See, I didn't know if he was going to zig and introduce you first when yeah. he had that big attraction. I was like all about. prepared for my, you know, for my commentary, but then you, you, you zagged to, to Lex and hey, yeah, right. there's, there's enough love to go around. He is an attractive That's man. right. He is. Oh, yes. you're too kind. Going purely by Avatar. You know, it was, uh, I, I could have commented on you because I finally did see what you look like. You changed your avatar. It was something else for a while, and you recently, in the last few days, I think, changed it. Yeah, it had been my avatar. I had a comic book version of myself up there since I started on Twitter way, way back many, many moons ago. That My buddy, who's an incredible comic book artist, drew for me. I just, I've just had it up there. I just never felt the need to change it. And I Just with my daughter's first birthday last week, I was like, you know what? She's going to get some props. Yeah, there you She's go. She's earned it. And I call it research for the show, but you did a video review of the, the new Fitbit thing that I watched. Yeah, which I'm wearing which right I think, now. I think you might have sold me on it. I think that I might have to hit the Apple Store later. Yeah, you know, the thing with the other Fitbits, the small ones, you know, it's like that they... I don't, do you guys wear... Like, I wear them in my bra all the time. And, <laughs> and it just yeah, gets stuck yeah. in the wash. You know, they come out, they break. And that's always the complaint. Every, every woman I've heard who's bought one of the original Fitbits or like the Fitbit One, they're like, oh, I've lost like three of them or they've all broken. <laughs> I keep I keep mine in my pocket. Um, I like the zip because I like nature's pocket. I like not having to charge it. No, <laughs> a hot I just, pocket. I, I like that the zip doesn't need doesn't need to be charged. It just uses like a super cheap battery. I got five of the batteries for a dollar total. Yeah, <laughs> so nice. it lasts for six months at a time. And then you know I just keep it with my wallet. So when my wallet comes out, the Fitbit comes out. I have not yet put it through the wash. Now but with the zip though, that doesn't have Bluetooth, right? So you, no, it does. It, it does. does. It syncs to my phone. There's yeah. a couple things it's missing, right? Like it doesn't do flights of stairs, which neither does the flex. Right. Wait, what does and that mean? It, it doesn't. Well, there's no so some of them, right? Oh, okay, okay. And then it doesn't do uh, sleep tracking at all. Oh, I need the sleep tracking. Which you know the flex says it does, but I don't know that's true. Like it says it does sleep tracking. I think that's that's like uh, it's like the darkness control knob on a toaster. <laughs> hey, I live and die by that darkness control knob. <laughs> like there's no that thing's not actually working. Um, I because I, I, I looked at it the other day and I thought you know if I guess if you actually maybe it gets smarter, but I, when I'm manually programming in you know certain sleep times and I'm up at weird hours, you know I'm up at like four a.m. and and stuff so it thinks that i'm being restless it's like no <laughs> i'm going to work like i'm not just being restless like i gotta pee and i'm up roaming around the house now that's me getting up because it says restless or um uh, or or i guess sleepy i don't know what it, the other are you, are you toggling it out of sleep mode into awake mode or are you doing like the the multi-repeated tap thing so that it knows you're awake now um sometimes yeah, <laughs> I think I, like I'm, I'm placing I'm... the blame on you. But wait a second, we got to pause for one second. We gotta, yeah, we got to. We, we wound up down this path. We haven't. You haven't yet introduced yourself to the listeners. Tell oh. tell the woefully uninformed, unprofessional listeners who is Clayton Morris. Uh, I am a I'm a father. I'm a father of two kids. Um, I'm a. I'm I like a, that you lead with that. I'm a guitar player. I'm a. Uh, recently uh, started doing meditation. 
And then I'm all, uh, I'm also a news anchor. Throw that in there on the side. And I cover technology for Fox News Channel. So those things, perhaps in that order, are the most important. What kind of guitar do you play? Uh, I play a little acoustic. Uh, I kind of got back into it in the past. Uh, I think, you know, it's funny. Like, my daughter has gotten me back into this stuff. She's a year old. Um, but she's very advanced in music. She sways a lot. And so... What does she play? I do that, too. She plays the spoon. She mm. plays the wooden spoon on wooden floor. Have you heard oh, of this? Oh, man. I've been I've been laying down some tracks and I could use a wooden spoon on wooden floor. <laughs> I'll get her to I'll get her to record something in GarageBand. Uh, awesome, popularized by the Mamas and the Papas. Yeah, she uh, <laughs> she no. There's this uh, thing every Thursday. There's a, a little coffee shop here in in in, uh, in town, and my wife started taking her there where they would just get together for like an hour and a half. This like local guitar player would play some acoustic music and whoever wanted to kind of join in and play music with him, the harmonica players, a couple other guitarists would get in and sort of just jam and play some Beatles music, play some Nick Lowe, whatever was on, you know, Bob Dylan, traveling Wilburys, whatever was on their mind that week. And, um, and so, you know, there's a bunch of kids that come to this thing around 10 AM and they just like, they, they have a lot of fun. They get little shakers out and they play. And I said, you know, I'm going to go dig my guitar out, blow some dust off of this, uh, off of, uh, off of my guitar, of my Martin guitar. And I'm uh, just going to go and play, and I've just been having a lot of fun with it. Awesome. When I was living in uh, Amsterdam, there was every Sunday we'd we'd go to this total dive bar, and it was a group of musicians who would get together. They didn't even have a stage. It was like the corner of the bar, but the bar was always dead. And everybody would, would collect up in the corner of the, the bar and just start playing. And there was no organization to it. There was no sense of – I don't even think there were real songs. Sometimes you would fall into a song because somebody would just start singing, and then it would all kind of come together, but – it wasn't anything that uh, – it was very much what you – I think what people who don't like jam bands think of jam bands as sounding like. Right. Sort of like going to a fish show and you're just like – you're not sure right. what's going to happen. Right. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean – and you know, there's no – what I like about it is there's no, um, there's no expectation of me being great. You know, uh, <laughs> I, That's pretty much what I've coasted on throughout most of my adult life, by the way. <laughs> hey, you and me both, man. I thrive. I need the expectation. I need people thinking that I'm going to do something. The jam band thing doesn't work. Maybe I'm the wrong kind of musician, but playing guitar or, or trying to like make up lyrics to, to sing along improv style doesn't work because I, I do like the prepared, rehearsed sort of thing. Yeah, I prefer well, – I mean the thing that excites me about playing guitar is knowing that like I'm going to play a song that people recognize, right? Like I, I have this vision of myself around a campfire. Like the night's kind of wearing on, everyone's about to eat some hot dogs or some beans or whatever by the campfire, and they're like, man, you know, conversation's fallen to a lull right now. I wish there was a cool guy in like, a, <laughs> you know, with a guitar hanging out that we could all, you know, who, who's what that What this guy? party needs is a guy with a guitar. Right. He, he wears Clayton with a slight scruffy face and some long hair and <laughs> cut off t-shirt. Hey, hey guys, I got it. I got my guitar here. I'm ready to go. You know, and I can it sounds play like out. an amazing oil painting, <laughs> like a Charlie Wilson painting. Like, <laughs> uh, laugh kills lonesome. Um, yeah, so I've, I've been I've been enjoying that. But it, the songs are pretty terrible. Like I'll play every other chord because I'm like I can't play that weird B right, flat. That's so minor. fast. I'll just I'll just get the ones I can get to. Right. I'm getting those major chords. In the rest. E right. C A. Okay, you're gonna go to B flat right. minor. Screw you. I'm gonna have a glass of wine while you. <laughs> I got really good at playing the piano in the sense that uh, I had this keyboard, this Casio keyboard in college that 
whenever you mashed any notes together, it would show you both on the staff and with the actual like letters what you were playing. So if I mashed together a bunch of notes, it was like, hey, that's A minor. That's and a then if you mashed the right notes together, it'd be like, oh, that's a minor major seventh. And I had never even heard of a minor major seventh. But then by mashing different keys in the right patterns and the keyboard telling you what it was, I understood what they all were. And then I figured out you could voice them differently, but it still counted as the same chord. Like I knew nothing. And then I figured it all out. So now when my kids have like the Lori Berkner fake book, Lori Berkner, Dave being a popular children's artist, I can. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. Right? I can play all the songs in it because I know all the chords and like Lori oftentimes makes it too easy and I realize you know what this is really on her recording it's a it's a B7 so I'm gonna play it I'm gonna play with a seventh on top but um you're gonna yeah, mix so it up a little bit yeah that that keyboard taught me everything I know You're real like, musicians hate me for that reason <laughs> because I'll, I'll just play the root chord I learned to play uh guitar by playing Garth Brooks and Nirvana songs that's awesome yeah I, I mean you always remember your first don't you <laughs> uh first first song i ever learned was uh tom petty's free fallen oh yeah such a good you one. and 87 percent of guitar no, players, you needed right? a capo right. for, you needed a capo for that right yeah i learned to play without the capo so i've been playing in the wrong key for like 18 years now i only just recently realized that i was supposed to put a capo on the third isn't fret. i mean a capo to me is like a revelation when you slap that capo on there you're like this is incredible and this is how yeah. it should sound and you're oh but the capo is never around when you need it it's like a bottle opener. I have two or three of them now. Oh. So my, my apartment is laid out in such a way that I, I have a guitar in every corner. So I can always just reach over and grab one if I feel like playing. On the piano, by the way, I don't use any frets. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> I had the hardest time. With, my sister, we, we, we were forced into – I played saxophone as a kid. And growing up in, uh, in the Wilson School District, I played saxophone since I was you know was a, a, a toddler. And then my mom – Did you we, say the Wilson School District? Yeah. Okay, so you went to you went to Wilson High School, and I went to Y Missing High School. Yeah, yeah. So, so that makes us that makes us bitter enemies, does it not? Uh oh. No, you know what? I, I was I always thought like the like I was in Wilson. I was like, oh, Y Missing. They're just like the nicer. They're like the the preppier <laughs> version of us. <laughs> yes, uh, we thought the same thing, but we thought about it derisively. Right. Um, <laughs> but wait, so wait, hang on a second. So you grew up in Eastern Pennsylvania, yeah. and now you live in New Jersey, right? Yeah, I live out just outside of the city. We moved out of Manhattan. We are living the same life, though, because that is exactly my journey. This is creepy. Uh, you're it's in this, weird. You're, but you're not. You're where are you? You're in New Jersey. I'm in Central New Jersey. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in Manalapan, New Jersey. I'm a little further out of the city than you are. Is that how you pronounce that? Manalapan. Yeah, yeah. Manalapan, Manalapan, but it's pronounced Manalapan. I. It's so weird. I've never heard of that city. And I've, oh, nobody has. It's outside Freehold. Okay, I've heard of Freehold. Yeah, yeah. It consists of just Lex and his family. <laughs> it's close to Rutgers. It's. It's the but city seriously. that Larry Page wanted to create today. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm just thinking that if, man, so we really have mirrored each other in many ways. So Okay, so your Fox News studio that you go to work, that's in Manhattan? Yeah, yeah. We're right next to, we're all part of the 30 Rock sort of complex. Oh, I see. Right at uh, Rockefeller Center. So it's all underground. Do you guys know about the massive underground hidden structure of 30 Rock? I don't think I do. My, my sister even works there, and I don't think I know that. I got lost underneath looking for a bathroom once. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you don't know where you're going down there, you will wind up, like, in New Jersey if you're not careful. <laughs> That's how I got or here. Or you'll wind up in Manalapan. Uh, I got to tell you, when I got lost, when I finally did find the bathroom, it was pretty disgusting. <laughs> You'd wish you hadn't found so it. So you might want to send somebody down there. <laughs> it's an entire catacomb. You can, you can walk from, I think, 42nd Street or close to that amount. Um, all the way through the underground catacombs. It's possible, and I've done this, to go meet um, 
a friend. Like the other day I, had, I met our probably mutual friend, Andy Anatko for coffee, um, across town, but I, it was pouring down rain and I never had to leave the underground. Like I just managed to get all the way over there, uh, through the underground catacombs that are underneath Rockefeller Center. You know, and there's all kinds of shops down there. You think like the the yeah. N- you know the NBC store and stuff like that, and that's like up higher. But you've got, you know, there's Starbucks under there. There's like restaurants under there. There's there's people wearing like bellhop jackets and stuff. I mean, it's like a whole underground culture in that whole <laughs> in that area. I remember thinking that there was like a mall down there. I think there is. And because I actually, on the day that I got my iPad mini, um, or I got the, the LTE version, um, and I had to run over to an eight. I'm just like, oh, where's their nearest AT&T store? And sure enough, underground, there's an AT&T <laughs> store uh, right next to the shine place. But funnily enough, LTE doesn't work underground. So they're, they've got like signs up all through this AT&T store, but yeah, LTE, LTE. And then you, but you can't see it on any of the devices. <laughs> it's great. Just trust they're us. They're like, yeah, take our word for it. When you go upstairs, it's going to be awesome. So we were talking before, uh, before we, we kicked things off here, we started down this Star Trek path and I kind of want to follow that through because I feel like there's something there. I feel like we can't talk about the Star Trek movies without at least acknowledging that for whatever reason, actually, I know the reason, the reason is another podcast, but, uh, Clayton's Wikipedia page mentions specifically that he collects old Star Trek novels. <laughs> Damn it. Star Trek novels? I bl- uh, yes. I blame Leo Laporte for doing this because... Yes, that's a twit... Re- it's the, the citation on twit- on Wikipedia is to twit. <sighs> Those bastards. I, um, <laughs> I was on... No, I, no, my I can wife- edit it right now, man. Tell me, what, what do you want it to say you collect? He collects old Star Wars novelizations, right? Or, right? or... Um, yeah, he has like rare F. Scott Fitzgerald books or something like that. Um, leather bound, right many leather bound books. They I smell um, like rye. I yeah, my wife was on uh, Twit. I don't know a few months ago, and and I was not in the house. And Dvorak put her up to it. She's like, go find where Clayton's books because she was she was using my <laughs> office, and uh, and Dvorak was ragging her about what was on the shelf. And I have a big collection of original those original run of Star Trek novels. Um, and they're not even novelizations. They're, you know, they were the, uh, came out like late seventies, early eighties. And then there were even some from the early seventies and late sixties, like the James Blish books, uh, that were based on the series. So you could basically get the novelization of the series, the sixties series. So uh, was sure. it novelization of the series or was it like continuations of the story? Like same universe, same characters, different stories. Um, no, they were so most of them. I remember reading these in, when I was in junior high school, I found like a collection of them in the high school, in the junior high school library. And there were episodes that I had seen on television, um, like mirror, mirror and these other things. And they were put into like five, like a five story book for each of them. And so you could read, you know, read along with them. And there were some, you know, obviously there were some things that weren't in the show that were in the, in the book, but I believe these were the James Blish, Blish books. And then, um, and then they started that run of the actual just novels, Star Trek novels, um, with right. some great writers uh, that who actually had 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 a big part in the original series, who wrote original screenplays for the original '60s shows. Um, like one of the first ones was the Entropy Effect. Uh, I think that was written by Volanda McIntyre, who also wrote uh, one of the '60s episodes or two of them, maybe. Um, Your memory for this stuff is insane. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but that's all I really remember. Then I have, they go up through like a couple hundred and there's like 150 of them or something. And I have, you know, a good chunk of the original ones that I had since I was, since childhood. And then I went on a bit of an eBay trend or an eBay <laughs> bender, 
last year where I was like, you know, you, you just get, you, you, I was like stuck in my office. I just would like firing away on these eBay books, you know, trying to get these Star Treks. And I'm like emailing the guy like a crazy person. I'm like, are you sure there are no bends in the corner? Are you sure? <laughs> are these mint conditions? I need this mint. If it's not right. mint, I'm not in. Now, you're saying this is mint, but I don't know. Is there any cre- – is- and I got to know the vernacular, too. You're like, All right, it's now free of water damage, but but was anybody smoking in your house? Because I need to know that. <laughs> now, so are you – would you say that – do you identify as a Trek-er or a Trek-e? I, people would ask me that growing up, and I was like, yeah, I'm, even though I've gone to like three Star Trek conventions, I was like, I'm not a Trekkie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not one of those. I'm not people. one of those yeah. guys. No, because I always, when I was there, I had an awareness of like how bad that guy standing next to me was, and how smelly that guy over there was. So, and even the guy that ran the local comic shop, Pagoda Comics, uh, down at the Toll House Shops in Reading, Pennsylvania, like Keith Biscani. I remember like his mom would hang out in the comic book shop with him. Like I remembered even then, like here's the guy that's running the comic book shop, and he is on a, a whole other level than me. He has obviously not showered for like four days. <laughs> See, it's so funny that you're saying this because this is the same sort of thought process that I use if I go to a They Might Be Giants concert where I'm like, man, I am surrounded by just some of the worst dregs of nerdy humanity. And I'm like, well, thank God I'm not one of those people. And if, right. if listen, if Clayton Morris can believe it at a, a Star Trek convention, then I'm comfortable believing it at a They Might Be Giants concert. <laughs> I've wound up at Comic-Con a couple of times, not because I was trying to go to Comic-Con, just weird twists of fate for work and things like that. And I'd always walk around, and I'm into that stuff. Like, I... I remember getting really excited about, you know, it was right before the Avengers was supposed to, like when they were really ramping up the Avengers stuff and like getting to see all of the comic book characters that I grew up reading. And I'm walking around and I keep thinking, you know, these, I'm not like these people. Right. I, I don't smell this. I don't look like these people. I don't smell like these people. And then it hits you that moment of it doesn't matter. Well, no, I think the true test is have you ever stood in a line to get someone's autograph at one of those things? No. I. I don't like to stand in line in general. I'm yeah. a grown up. I'm going to try to. I'll pay somebody else to stand in line for me. See, then, there, then there you go. That's all. If you can answer no to that question, then you're not one of those people. <laughs> I, I've never really understood the autograph thing, um, where people are like, "I just need to have this person's signature, and then my life will be complete." I mean, it's one right. thing if it's you know people who are anticipating others going on uh, Clayton esque eBay benders, but if you're doing it just because you want to own the autograph, I, I've never gotten that. Like. I did invite Weird Al Yankovic to my bar mitzvah, and when he replied, <laughs> he replied awesome. with a postcard that had his face on it, and he had written a message, Lex, best wishes in your bar mitzvah, sorry I can't be there, Weird Al Yankovic. Like, that I kept, but I hadn't gone to him and said, hey, can I have your autograph? I had invited my, my bar mitzvah. It's a different thing, but, like, I have never otherwise craved <laughs> or requested somebody's autograph. I don't get it. There was, I think the sentence, I invited Weird Al Yankovic to my bar mitzvah, is the most Lex Friedman thing that has ever been said out loud. <laughs> right, like you, you allowed this invitation to go out. Like, well, who's on the list? Um, <laughs> Weird Al, yeah, send that one. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, he's in. He's in. He's Adam in. D'Angelo from Hebrew School, take or leave. Al Yankovic, definite yes. Right, but he can't bring, no plus one. The the thing is, everybody else who RSVP knows sent a gift, but Al nothing. Wow, that guy's a jerk. Yeah. Wow. How does he sleep at night? Yeah. I mean, I love Weird Al. There were a couple of brushes. I mean, I did actually go after because I I, I grew up do, sort of doing stand up comedy, and I loved I loved I thought that that's what I was going to do for my career when I was young, and and so I was obsessed with Jerry Seinfeld when I was like fourteen, fifteen, sixteen years old, and uh, and I went and I. 
got tickets to at the Man Music Center down near Philadelphia. I don't know if it's still there. I think it closed. You remember the Man Music Center? It was like this round building. I don't. It was like a performance center. Yeah, maybe King of Prussia area in, in, near Philly. And uh, so but after the show, I saw him like two nights back to back. I had like front row seats. I, th- I don't even know if I dragged my girlfriend at the time. I don't know. I didn't even care. And because <laughs> to me, Jerry was my girlfriend. And uh, so I would like, I hung out out like outside the back of the thing. Like I knew he was like coming out. This was a whole group of people waiting out there. And I was like, I, I've, I felt like a scummy guy, you know, like who, who wants to wait around for an autograph? But I just wanted like a picture or something, maybe to shake his hand or something. And uh, I shoved like a note card in his hand and uh, <laughs> <laughs> with your number right. on it. And I reached over and I, and I said, I, I said, Jerry, when are you coming back? I said, when are you, I don't know. It was the stupidest thing to say, like in that sort of pressure cooker moment. <laughs> I said, when are you coming back? And he said, I'm here now. <laughs> and it was a very like Zen thing to say. I was like, yes, you're right. I should just enjoy your presence right now, not wondering when I you'll come back. I too should be here now. That's right. <laughs> it's, so when I, the first time I met Al, I was, inter- I was uh, the Reading Eagle uh, had this section that was for teens, by teens, about teens. Oh, yeah. I know that call. Voices. Right. I, oh, and, yeah. and I, I was Thursday. a regular. Yes, I was a regular in voice. I had a column in Voices, but then one time I had the back page with this interview I arranged with Al Yankovic after a Weird Al concert in Hershey, Pennsylvania. So I have arranged to do this interview, and I'm backstage ready to go in and meet with him. And I've I've given a lot of thought to how I'm going to introduce myself. And they bring me in, and I go up to Al, and I say, Hi, I'm Weird Al Yankovic. You must be Lex Friedman. And that was my big, ice-breaking, hilarious joke. And uh, I have never stopped hating myself. (laughs) (laughs) Nor has he. And you worked on that like the whole drive too, right? I mean, you were thinking about it, mapping it out. I mean, I I had been planning it for weeks. But yes, I thought about the the delivery style and how I was going to do it. He was great. Then my my very first question too, I said, you know, if you had, you know, 20 minutes to talk to to your, your idol, I don't know if I said idol or hero or what, what would you ask him? And he said, oh, come on, Lex, that's your job. And I thought I was giving him such a great opening to be hilarious. And that first one, he shot me down, and I got really nervous. But then the rest of the interview went uh, went swimmingly. There's something about celebrity that people get, I don't, I don't want to say caught up in, but it's easy to get knocked off your feet a little bit. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I can't. I can't leave the house. Let's be honest. <laughs> God, when we asked your assistant's assistant if we could get you on the show, right. uh, <laughs> there was a lot of waiting. I'm lucky in that I do get to meet quite a few, you know, interesting people. And, uh, but I, I never, it, it, it's, I think it was funny when I was younger, you just get like knocked off your feet about it, you know? And I was obsessed with David Letterman when I was a child and he actually like called my house and, uh, when I wanted an internship with him and like left a voicemail message. Wow. Um, it's like the <laughs> you missed thing. the call. That's the worst. Yeah. Oh, I wasn't home. I was so pissed. It was actually better though that I got the like the the, the audio tape from the cassette machine. But, right. Yeah. Um, you can't be disappointed by a voicemail. But I'm never. You know, there's so many people blow through our studios on a regular basis, and they're you know you're just I'm like oh there's Arnold Schwarzenegger walking down the hall. And you're like whoa there's Steve Jobs like in a funky hat. You know, and you're you just kind of. It, it's it's incredible, and you're kind of like oh my god, and you you'll you'll tell like your coworkers holy crap that was you know Arnold Schwarzenegger just walked by and. Um, but then there are those, there's like those very few people that you're just blown away by and sort of speechless because you're just, you're crazy about them. Like right. Eric Idle, you know, um, of like Monty Python fame. Like that's sure. like that kind of level for me. Um, or if I had a chance to meet Sting or something like that, it would knock me on my, knock me on my ass, uh, knock me on my ass. So I you're not, going Irish there for a second. Yeah. <laughs> knock me on my so, ass. So you're not, you're not an autograph collector. 
No, I mean, I think the Jerry Seinfeld one was the only one. And then last or two weeks ago for uh, National Free Comic Book Day, Jim Lee was in the studio and I was a you know, oh, wow. huge fan. And so he on the air drew a, a picture from Batman Hush for my son. Like he sketched out a whole big picture of Batman and wrote from, you know, for my son Miles and um, something, you know, uh, that he wrote Jim Lee. And, and well, that's some, like. That that's way beyond just an autograph. Yeah, right. that, and that was, that's pretty awesome in its own. That was right. cool. And I told my buddy, he was like, "You realize that people will stand in a line for like two hours at a comic convention <laughs> and pay a thousand dollars for that?" Yeah, <laughs> oh, wow. that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's, I've yeah. never done the autograph thing. If I'm going to meet somebody famous or if I'm going to talk to somebody famous, I want to make a story out of it. I don't want a piece of paper with their name on it. I want something crazy that I can talk. Have about you ever later. done anything embarrassing in front of a celebrity? I mean, other than uh, Lex's story oh. to Al. But- Almost exclusively, I do embarrassing <laughs> things in front of well, people in general. Um, I, I, I don't know. I get, I don't get caught off guard by celebrity. I get caught off guard by um, a disparity in knowledge. Where uh, we've had Jonathan Colton on the show, and then after he was on the show, I went and saw him live, and we talked after the show. But there was such a, I knew stuff about him, and he kind of knew who I was. Such an imbalance there that it was hard to get a conversation rolling, right. and I get really nervous about that. Yeah, I also but, think it's probably a little bit more uncomfortable if you are the the celebrity in the relationship. If you know the person was a fan first, like right. it's it's weirder. I think with people you like a lot, like and that's the ones I would get most excited about meeting. But when you're a fan first, it's even if they know a lot about you, your relationship isn't on equal footing because you first like them for what they do, and it's I mean it's flattering and stuff. But I think it also it makes the concept of a a different kind of relationship weirder, right? Harder I'm, to attain. I'm never going to be the, oh, my God, you're a celebrity guy. I'm more of a, I love your work. I'd love to talk to you about your ideas kind of guy. And it's really hard to sell that when you're just sort of awkwardly like, so I know stuff about you and I don't know what to say. Like in 1991, I had a Rocketeer poster on my wall. <laughs> Who didn't? You know, and, and I had become a fan of The the killer, uh, the Killing. I don't know if you've seen that show. Um, you know, uh-uh. it's finished two seasons. It was a pretty popular AMC show. It has Billy Campbell in it, you know, who played the Rocketeer. Ah, yeah. And... He was on, he was on our show. I don't know a few months ago promoting his new. Uh, it was like that Lincoln movie. It was. It was. I don't know. Right. It was like going after John Wilkes Booth or something. Was like the main premise of it. You know when like all those Lincoln movies came out at once. Um, like, <laughs> Wonder why. And uh, and you know it was weird because I, I just I, I was not a fan. I really didn't care. I mean I was a fan of him on The Killing and I was a fan of him in The Rocketeer from my childhood. And then here he is sitting with me as sort of a contemporary, and we're just you know talking in the commercial break before the before the interview, and and I just said uh, I almost brought you know I just jokingly said I almost brought my Rocketeer poster with me, and like it totally disarmed him, and he laughed about it. Um, but there was like a hint of truth to it. I mean, I still don't have that poster, but I was like, I was kind of marking out for this guy. I'm like, hey, <laughs> you know, this is like my childhood superhero stuff right here, you know. <laughs> I for me it was whenever I don't know how old I was when I realized that celebrities really are also simply people. They're just but, like us. That's right. But it was it was really eye opening for me. And so now I I almost I can't think of the last time I felt intimidated meeting somebody famous. When it's people who I respect or you know have admired for a long time, I'm not nervous about meeting them so much as I am uh, nervous about a 
not wanting them to hate me and be yes. not wanting to find out that I will accidentally hate them for some reason. Like we've had <laughs> we've had idols of mine on the show. Like when we had Flansburg from the MP Giants on the show, it was like, man, what if he's like a total dick to us on the interview? And it turned out he was like the nicest human in unprofessional history. You know, I, that's the kind of stuff that makes me nervous. It's not like oh, I'm meeting a famous person. It's like oh, what if I make it so that he never likes me? <laughs> right. That would be terrible. It reminds me of skydiving. In a weird way. Well, I've, I've been skydiving once, and when I went, my fear, the whole way, the, the plane ride up and then falling out of the plane, all of that, at no point did it cross my mind that I might die. That was not the thing that I was afraid of. What I was afraid of is that with all the nervousness, my stomach was really upset, and I was pretty sure I was going to crap my pants. Right. So that if like you died, some point on the way down. you're like, oh, this guy died. Not only did he die, he crapped his pants, too. Oh, no, I don't care about that. I don't care if I died crapping my pants. Right. You just don't want to live having crapped your right. pants. Right. I don't want to land with, with, with a you know, pants full of crap. There's a four-by-four to... four grid, right? There's, I could just die. I could <laughs> right. die and crap my pants. I could live and crap my pants, or I could just live. And you really only wanted what, either die and crap my pants or live. If, if you're going to die, you might as well crap your pants. Is what it's, if, if, well, if I shit my pants, I'm just going to like, I'm not going to pull the chute. <laughs> <laughs> now be honest. Right. As an adult, have you ever crapped your pants? Um, not at the White House. Uh, Al Roker <laughs> that was a weird segue. Um, not at the White House. Well, no, well, Al Roker recently told a story about when he crapped his pants at the White House. Oh, oh okay. okay. Uh, I don't think as an adult I ever have. Yeah. I remember I would be, in junior high school when I did before I went to school one day. I changed before I went to school. I once wore, I mean, it wasn't an adult, but I wore <clears throat> like green, green corduroy pants that my mom insisted I wear in like eighth <laughs> grade. And I had no mom. choice. Yeah, and I had to wear them. And I mean, it was the height of embarrassment for wearing these things. But, you know, it was the fall of the year and probably it seemed like a good idea. And actually, maybe now I would put them on because I don't give a shit. They might be a little too small now, but and I remember I wet myself. Uh, I don't know why. I don't, I don't know if the two things had went hand in hand or not. But um, <laughs> maybe it was my like sort of it was my way of getting out of these pants. Can't wear these, mom. They've got <laughs> urine on them. <laughs> but then I was just wet the rest of the day because it's not like you when you're in eighth grade you bring an extra pair of pants on the off chance you're going to wet yourself. <laughs> <laughs> like I do with my three-year-old or my two-year-old at daycare, you know, or like I do now. Right. <laughs> I'm pretty good at. Uh, I pride myself on being able to keep things in and, and tell like, to hold it until you're at. The, that's great, right? Well, you know, I, I'll admit because I've got. Uh, sometimes I get a queasy stomach, and there's there's been some close calls, but I don't think I've ever broken that seal. What is, what's your What's your uh, method in the car? For me, oh. if I if I'm coming home and the stomach is upset, and I'm like. I need to get home fast. I have to make the car one of two things. It either has to be incredibly swelteringly hot or ice cold. But like a normal neutral temperature is not acceptable. I've got to go to a temperature extreme. I've got to go to a temperature <laughs> extreme to try to help myself hold it together. Wait, uh, so are we talking number one or number two here? I'm talking number two. Okay, okay. So we're on the same page. I can't listen to music if I'm in the car. And, and like you get that, that moment of like rushed panic of, oh my God, I have to find a bathroom soon. I can't hear music. I have to... The, the windows have to be down so I can get fresh air and no music. I can nothing that I have to think about. And, the, and for those few minutes or however long it takes until I get home, I temporarily believe in a God <laughs> and, I, and I'm begging for help. And you're listening to fresh air on NPR. Like that's the only, of course. <laughs> like I need to hear Terry gross right now. Um, 
Yeah, I know what you mean. And my friend, this affects my friend too. My idiot, he's my my friend. Like this my is friend, a story my, about my friend. Well, no, my, my best my best friend growing up, he would do the same thing. He would he would think that my bowels were like his, and so he think that the same sort of <laughs> <laughs> the same sort of weather afflictions would afflict. So he, if he had to do this run number two and and literally you know get to a bathroom right now because he's going to lose his you know he would he 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 would get chills. And if he put on the air conditioning, it would make it even worse, and it would like sh- it would probably shoot out right then. So he would think it would do something. For- <laughs> and we- because we'd eat we so many cheesesteaks in Pennsylvania, I think you know uh, that was just like <laughs> we'd be out and about and make oh god, oh god, and he'd like crank up the AC just to rib me and be like, uh, "You having trouble now?" You know, and he'd be like poking me in the in the side, and I'm like that's not bothering me. That air, that cold air is actually feeling good right now. <laughs> you know, I feel like I have a great story to bridge the gap between crap and uh, late night talk show hosts when I was thinking about David Letterman from before but I'm not going to tell it until after we take a break for our sponsors sponsor break la 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 <laughs> so we've got two sponsors today is that two? Right? two two yes can you believe it I'll believe anything if you say it <laughs> uh, first first sponsor sponsor number one is our very good friends at Panic haven't multiple people from Panic been on this show yeah, it's getting a little uh, getting a little cozy. We love us. They uh, we love us. We love them. They love us. We also love us. So, what is Panic sponsoring us for? That is, like what are they much, trying uh, to promote? Oh, they want to. They want us to tell people about Status Board as if people haven't already heard about it. Chumps wasted their money on this spot. <laughs> everybody, everybody knows Status Board, right? Everybody has. To. I'm looking at my Status Board right now. I love this thing. Well, what is it? I'm pretending it's, I'm a man who lives under a rock. It's a it's it's uh, it's an iPad app, and on this iPad app, it's got a uh, let's call it a board, and on this board is little widgety bits of information about things that are going on for you or your company. Like I'm looking at mine right now, and it's got this alternating ticker thing telling me how how many friends have birthdays that are coming up. I can see a, a quick bird's eye view of email and tweets that are incoming. I can see calendar stuff i can see the time the local weather and the forecast for the next few days but wait a second arranging all that stuff on your status board that must require like a computer science degree right no it's on a grid you just drag stuff around and you can make it bigger you can make it smaller well what if i'm a hardcore pro user there must be nothing for me in status board then right (laughs) there's there's all sorts of stuff you can do with data (laughs) no what can i do with data yes there's for the harder core users, it's got pro modules, graph and table and do it yourself. You can easily integrate with your special data sources. That's awesome. Uh, most importantly, though, it's got one of the best uh, setup assistants you'll ever see. God, that is so true. They've got that like sort of uh, it's a pseudo Ikea manual with a <laughs> yeah, with yeah. a cable sasser orchestrated soundtrack behind it. It is the whole thing is just as you would expect from Panic. Beautiful from beginning to end. Every I, pixel is exactly where it needs to be. I use other Panic software every day. If I had a giant TV in my office, I would probably use Status Board every day too. But I use I, I love Panic. But th- so I this, use oh go ahead. I use Status Board. Uh, I've got two iPads. I've got my iPad Mini, which is one that I actually use, and I've got my regular iPad, which has Status Board on it and tells me things that I. I, you know, let's face it. I could find this stuff out if I went to dashboard or if I opened up my phone or something. But to just have it there on all the time on my iPad is pretty handy. But the app has got to cost what two hundred fifty thousand dollars? No, it only costs ten thousand. Wait, 
It only costs $10. I'm being told it's just $10. So <laughs> this just in. If, uh, if, uh, so many of our listeners listen on iOS devices. If they want to check out wherever they are, whether they're at an iOS device or a Mac or a PC or an, an Amiga, if they want to check out Status Board right now, where do they go? I don't think it works on an Amiga. <laughs> um, they, they would go to panic.com slash unprofessional. That's fully spelled out, unprofessional, not unprofesh. Panic.com slash unprofessional. Well, I'm going there right now. Speaking of uh, former guests of the program who are sponsoring it, you'll never guess who's our other sponsor today. Um, Jonathan Colton? Very close. It's uh, Rogue Amoeba. We've had two Rogue Amoebans on the show as well. Rogue Amoeba is sponsoring to tell our listeners about fission. All right? Man. This gets, this gets, hang on, this gets really crazy because we've had two people from Panic, two people from Rogue Amoeba, and one of the people from Panic is married to one of the people from Rogue Amoeba. You're right. That is pretty crazy. It's a hall of mirrors today, Lex. It's like Mergon Central up in this bitch. But anyway, <laughs> um, so let me tell you about fishing. You can crop trim and split audio you can paste in and join files together it's an audio editor all right you can rapidly split one long file into many littler files it's for fast uh lossless audio editing and it's lossless even if you're editing mp3s or aac files and uh, new in version 2 efficient by the way batch conversion between formats and it's got a lot of formats it can handle mp3 aac apple lossless flac AIFF and WAV formats. By the way, the worst thing about the AIFF format is that there's really no shorter way to say it other than AIFF. You can't call it an AIFA. AIF. 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 So, uh, listen, just, you know, when you talk about panic, people know right away you're talking about quality software. When you talk about Rogue Amoeba, it's the same thing. Nobody knows audio Mac ness better than these folks. And, uh, I mean, it's just, Fission is a killer app. I'm going to give you the URL. It's a free download for you to check it out so you can actually explore Fission and start messing around with it without paying even a dime. And the URL I'm going to give you is unprofesh.com slash Fission. Remember, Fission is F-I-S-S-I-O-N. So go to unprofesh.com slash Fission. Then you'll say, hey, I've gone Fission. Uh, no, you Dude. won't because you're not me. But I'm just saying, this is, um, <laughs> I use Fission. Uh, it is. It is. You know. It's good. You could look at it and instantly. You really have it. used it. Oh yeah, man. I. I actually. I really dig this thing. I do all of the editing on. The, I do the content editing on this show, and I do a lot of my audio splitting in either Logic or GarageBand. But sometimes we'll get a file from a guest or uh, from one another, or we'll get something from like a live show that just needs to be trimmed up. And opening that stuff up in GarageBand or Logic can be a real pain. So just being able to cut things quickly and efficient is a pretty big deal for me. Oh, totally. It works pretty much exactly the way you want an audio editor to work. And it's um, it's brain dead simple. It reminds me a little bit of the software I used to use in the early 90s, I guess, on the Mac that doesn't exist anymore. I think it was called Sound Edit Pro or something like that. But it's just where you you know you highlight waveforms and you muck about with them and you do what you want to do. And Fission does all those things and it does it brilliantly. And you should go check them out. Unprofesh.com slash Fission. And the other one is uh, Panic.com slash Unprofessional. Check out those two great sponsors uh, who we would make babies with if it was possible to make babies with a sponsor. Yeah, that's not creepy at all. We say we love our sponsors, and we really do. We especially love this week's sponsors. Yeah, this is these are pretty good prayer. It's hard to beat that. Speaking of beating things, wait, what? And we're back. This is a true story. Is that in my senior year of college, I decided I really wanted to my my then fiance, now wife, and I we were going to move to L.A. after college, and 
I wanted to have a job writing for a late night talk show. I figured the guy who I could get to hire me, the guy who most needed my help, was Jay Leno. <laughs> the guy who most needed your help. Right. That, I, I feel embarrassed that that's the job I wanted. But so... My senior year, I started writing him a postcard each day that had my contact information printed on one side and then suggested jokes that he should have made during the previous night's monologue on oh, the other. Oh, man. And I he probably these, deserved that. But. Oh, no. It, was, it wasn't like you did a bad job. It was just like, here are some other jokes I thought of for the day. And I would do it every day, five days a week, without fail. And about four months into the experiment, so I think that's a lot of postcards, a lot of Jay Leno-style monologue jokes. Yeah, yeah, so, uh, I get a call, not from Jay. He did not take the classy Letterman route of calling Clayton Morris at home. Uh, I got a, a call from somebody in his office uh, explaining, A, that there was uh, a legal issue with my sending them jokes because they couldn't accept any unsolicited jokes. I'm like, well, I'm not trying to get you to use these jokes. I just want you to hire me. And then she said, well, B, is that there's no turnover. Everybody loves Jay and nobody ever leaves him. So there's no chance of an opening for you to fill. Uh, it was it was crushing, oh. and that is when I realized I should start hating Jay Leno. That's actually kind of sad. There's no turnover, so nobody who writes for Jay Leno ever goes on to do anything else. <laughs> right? <laughs> they cap it there. Writing for Leno is a dead end job. Yeah, you, you should be glad you didn't get it. Thank goodness. Well, and they're like, oh, and she also said, and by the way, we're also insulted that you think uh, the current crop of employees' jokes are pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> That's how, if I were Jay and I'm getting these postcards, I'm going to be thinking, like, who is this douchebag who's watching every night but thinks he can do better? Come on. Yeah, I can't. He should have hired me. I, 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 openly mock, I openly mock Leno on, uh, on my show. Anytime we ever bump <laughs> yes. in and out of a break with, like, a, some of his show, I just can't. I just, I, I, I've never found the guy funny. Um, yeah. But, you know, the thing is, he was funny when he was doing stand-up, and he would spend, like, a year crafting jokes. Um, right. But when he every day has to go out there, and you know, once in a while he gets off a good one, of course. I mean, he's a comedian after all. But he, it, it's he's just got like, many high paid writers who never quit. Yeah. Uh, and just, have, you read, have you read any of Bill Carter's books? Yes. And his most recent one, of course, on the, the most recent craziness with Conan and Leno. <laughs> right. He, Leno is like the demon in the story, you know? Right. I mean, he's clearly, I mean, to me, it's clear he's not a good guy. But when you talk about how he used to be funny, it's sort of. This is uh, maybe this is a weird comparison to make with a Fox News anchor, but to me it's sort of like the same as the George W. Bush syndrome, where when you looked at video clips of him before he was president, he was much more—I don't know what the best word—eloquent, I guess, or much much better at speaking contemporaneously than he was seemingly after he was elected president. Probably, I'm guessing, because of the fear of constantly saying the wrong thing and getting you know hounded for it. But like where Jay was really funny, then gets the best possible show for a funny person and squanders it. And where George was like really good at talking and then gave up on that ability yeah, and once then, he was in the White House. And then now he, I think you bring up a great point because now that he's out and you see some of these interviews, he doesn't do a lot of them, but he's recently been doing them. And one of my colleagues. The paintings. Yeah, the paintings <laughs> and stuff. And good for him. You know, he's whatever. He's, you know, he's, He's finding something he's happy about, and he's he and he's not really keeping it. He's not sticking his nose in politics, you know. And right, and, uh, <laughs> was he ever? <laughs> <laughs> and he's you know like Dana Perino did this interview with him uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago for his that library opening, and um, and uh, you know he just he doesn't seem to suffer from that same you know any of the malapropisms that he once did, you know. Right. I think it's I think it's interesting to look at at where he was before, where he is now. And then during his presidency, part of that, I have to imagine, is a bit of him putting on an act. Because so much of why he, people voted for him was he, he, was the, he was the guy that you could have a beer with. Putting on an act, uh, 
at the beginning or at the uh, during his presidency? During the presidency, like maybe it was he was trying to play up a folksy image because it was it's hard to it's hard to really hate a guy if he's kind of the lovable dullard, right? Yeah, I don't think that's quite the way he would phrase that, but like that same general idea. I think the same thing that Jimmy Carter tried to do too, right? Was you know he's from Georgia, he's the lovable peanut farmer, right? Like, oh, right. Wow, look at me! I just wound up in D.C. Oh, oops! You know, I just fell off a hay truck. I didn't even realize I was here. You know, um, and tries to you know tries to do the same thing, but you can't. You're institutionalized when you get to D.C. Like you cannot possibly still be an outsider. But you know, put on that act, I guess it works. We should get Bush on our show. <laughs> Give him a call. He's just painting. <laughs> so now we don't talk about work, but I break the rules when it suits me. Is do you have to? Well, I'm trying to find the least obnoxious way to phrase it. Are you trying it. to ask if there's a party line he has to tell? Well, no, it's not. that's not exactly my question. It's basically, is, is there a test to, that you have to pass to apply to be the anchor? <laughs> like, do you, must you fill out a questionnaire of, like, your thoughts on abortion and gay people? <laughs> and like, or do they just know from other things you've done, or do they not ask? No, I mean, you know, I'm, they've never asked, and the only thing I've ever been asked is to be myself on the air. The only thing I've ever—that's the only direction I've ever gotten—is to be myself on the air, which allows me to call bullshit on every side. So right. I call out idiot Republicans, I call out idiot Democrats, I call out idiot Independents. I call out, <laughs> and there's no shortage of any of them. Right. I mean, that's the beauty of my, you know, hashtag like, politics. Congress has a 14 percent <laughs> approval rating, and they're all idiots. So, um, well, 14 percent are okay. Right. I want to know who the 14 percent are. Uh, but no, so I've never had to. That's great. And you know, sort of my background. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in Philly, so it was sort of a pretty Philly, and then into, into I was born in Philly, and then family moved out to Reading, and pretty blue collar. I can't believe area. you lived in Reading. That's just unbelievable. I, I know it's crazy. Small world. Um, so you know, a lot of my uh, a, a lot of my sort of liberal tendencies growing up, and then. I think, you know, I've sort of morphed over the years into a bit of a I'm certainly more uh, middle of the road kind of guy. There's no there's no party line that I tow because I think I think all, all the all the party lines to tow are crap. I was about to say that I think the reason we don't often talk about politics or ever talk about politics on this show is because we just assume that the people who listen or the people who would be our guests kind of fall into the same categories as we do. But I'm not sure that's true. Yeah. You know, I've had a bit. I, I, I tend to believe in the, the you know the beauty of the earth and the and caring for for those around me, but that doesn't necessarily make you one way or the other. I mean, I've certainly met libertarians in my path who feel that same way, but they also feel that you know government should just stay out of their life, and I have an affinity for that. As I see, you know, I, I get to talk to a lot of really smart people, people who are much smarter than me. Um, you know, law professors and all sorts of people who have you know been around the world of politics, and you know, you just get to you, you just get the sense that Washington is a an absolute mess, um, and the amount of regulation. And I've talked to you know business owners in California who just wanted to open a patio on their on their restaurant, and they couldn't because they they tried. They they actually got the permits for it. They got the plans approved uh, because the high level of regulation. They spent a hundred thousand dollars building the patio in San Jose and then 
they go to open the patio. They have the inspector come out. And the inspector says, "No, this is all wrong." And they say, "Well, what do you? I, I, you approve the plans." And she, the inspector says, I, "I know, but I made a mistake." And so he eats the cost, and he can't ever open the patio, and he has to close his business. I mean, these are the types of things that just don't happen in other places. I was in New Zealand recently, where you can—that's the fastest country in the world for your ability to open a business, and you can, I think, open a business in New Zealand faster than any country, and you can open a business in the very same day. Um, wow. Yeah, like you, open a store, like legitimately, like a store, like a business business. Yeah, you can be incorporated. I think within the same afternoon. Oh, oh, um, that's pretty good. In terms of country, I know here because I live in Denver. In the state of Colorado, you can you can file LLC and like, be a business within minutes. Yeah, I don't know if that's the same kind of thing. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and of course it's state to state, but you look at like you know just what the mess of California is. But so I've, I, mm-hmm. I've, I think I don't know that I've shifted a lot. I mean, I come from a family of social workers, so I I sort of believed in the the Bill Clinton philosophy, you know, philosophy of don't you know uh, lend a helping hand, not a handout, um, and uh, that's sort of informed my my thinking. But then I've seen this just this massive financial mess and it's sort of informed another way of thinking for me. So right for me, right. The, the political thing that I love or the, although I don't believe everything that he believes by a long shot, but I love Penn Jillette's crazy libertarianism where he specifically says, I am quite certain that I am wrong about many of these things. Like, oh, I, right. first of all, I could never run for public office because I'm not smart enough and I know I'm wrong and I'm not political enough. And I, you know, I, I don't like compromising. I just like winning. Um, but, you know, where he talks, you know, he, he can make a very compelling Penn Jillette style argument for various libertarian philosophies. But then just his constant acknowledgement that, you know, I could be wrong. And then when I talk to people who are like, you know what, we really need to have a safety net, they convince me. And then I talk to the anarchists who are like, we need nothing. And they convince me. And so I keep landing on, and he calls it his nut point of view. And I just love that. I love this saying, yeah. here's what I think. And I could, I'm probably wrong. I, I really like that. Well, it's I, like Ron Paul. You remember Ron Paul during the, <laughs> during the debates? I mean, he, you know, he was the one in the room when everyone was like, God, he's making the most sense. But then he would say something where you're like, Really? So no health care at all? There's no – we're just going to rely on the community? Because that, that means I'm going to rely on Alex across the street, you know, if I need to get a, you know, get a tooth pulled. And that guy's an asshole. Right? You know, like, like uh, okay. Some of this argument breaks down when you get down to the nitty-gritty. <laughs> yeah. 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 Pendulette is kind of my, I'd say, political compass. But I've learned that the people who's, who I can talk to about politics the most aren't the people who necessarily agree with me. It's the people who are willing to uh, – recognize when they're wrong about things. And I try to be good about this. And the best example I can think of is something that, that kind of came from Penn Jillette, my, my stance on guns. And his whole thing was very libertarian, give everybody a gun, give everybody a gun. And I, I bought into that for a long time. And then even, I mean, even living in Colorado, home of Columbine, still believed that this was a good idea. And it wasn't until the thing at Sandy Hook, and I kind of took a, a, I don't know, a harder look at my own views there. And I realized that as much as I might philosophically think that this thing is true, as much as I am pro-gun, I'm even more pro-not murdering children. And I have to, I feel like, resolve the differences between what's actually going to work in the real world and what I think the political ideal would be. Right, without punishing, like, you know, the law-abiding gun owners argument. And, you know, you get in that, you know, those hairy, hairy territory, and you're like, well, maybe I just don't know enough about this, damn it. I'm going to go back to reading comic books. <laughs> to I'm me, go though, watch some Star Trek. Right, right, exactly. To me, the biggest political debate of our time is Kirk or Picard. 
I disagree. I disagree. I don't think that that one's that controversial. I'm more interested in Star Trek versus Star Wars, and it's especially because of J.J. Abrams. <laughs> See, I don't have enough knowledge base to answer any of those questions, having never seen an episode of the TV show, only seeing the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, really? and missing two of six Star Wars movies. Yeah. You're an asshole. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> You've never seen the original any of this because you have a hatred of it? Uh, no, I I don't know. No, I don't have a hatred of it. I like sci-fi. I especially like time travel focused sci-fi. Oh, I love that. But there's something about Star Trek that has never appealed to me. But there's um, a couple of there's a couple of time travel know. episodes that might get you. There's actually a number of them from the 60s show. That might be a good place for you to start. <laughs> I love that you want to evangelize it to me, though. I, really, there, I, I mean, there's agree. actually a great episode. I'm trying to think. If, you know, there's a couple. He hasn't even seen all six Star Wars movies. I don't think we're <laughs> going to get him on Star Trek. Oh, man. I, and you know what? And our friend Dan Morin always gets upset because one of the Star Wars that I'm missing is um, what he thinks is the best one. Uh, Empire? Chapter 5. Right, yeah. Empire Strikes Back. Oh, boy. Yeah. He's never... Can you believe this shit? No. <laughs> I mean, Empire? I mean, I remember standing in line as a kid. With, like My parents ran and grabbed like a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken when that, thing, oh, when that movie that was opening because so the line was so long. We had to eat there. We had to wait in line for like four hours. <laughs> it was the greatest movie ever. See, my parents didn't stand in lines. My parents didn't love going to the movies. And then when we rented movies, we rented stuff that they wanted to see. See, I didn't get into Star Wars until I was... I never saw Star Wars until I was 15. So I felt like I was a late bloomer. But you still haven't seen Empire. That's just insane. Yeah, I mean, at this point. Is it one of those, is it one of those things where you're like, well, just at this point, I'm just not going to even bother? Like, well, no, I've been trying to make up for lost time. Dave sent me the, uh, the Indiana Jones trilogy or, uh, at the end of 2012. All three. The only three Indiana Jones movies they made. And I, I finished it on your birthday of last year. I finished the trilogy. Clayton's birthday is December 31st, yeah. by the way. Giddy That's it. a little creepy. Also, I'm still on the Wikipedia page. Because I was wondering, I wanted to ask you before, is it annoying or tiresome that people are constantly making the jokes like, hey, we're really celebrating your birthday in style and that it's always, you've got to do double duty on your birthday? Or is it is it a, a perk? No, I don't mind. I never minded it because I always had off school. So it was always a party. You know? <laughs> right. My birthday is usually over Thanksgiving break, so I had the same sort of thing. And on the rare occasions that it wasn't or isn't, I would be furious. Like, school on my birthday? Well, one of the annoying things, the the annoying joke that I always heard was, I bet your parents were happy they got the tax break. And I used to, like, when I was like 10, I was like, that's hilarious. And it wasn't until I I understood taxes, you know, until I was in my early 30s, when I understood what that joke meant. I didn't even know. Do you understand taxes? <laughs> Barely. I have a cursor. Can you help me with some stuff? Because I got... I, got I, can tell you, I can show you where to offshore some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> My father-in-law's birthday is January 1st, so everybody always has a race to wish him happy birthday because it's like if the close, everybody's already awake and the yeah. closer you are to you know, midnight, oh, the first person the first to wish him. Yeah. yeah, then they got screwed on their taxes. I know. I now know that. Yeah. yeah, they had to spend a whole year suffering with him. Right. Man. No discount. We tried to squeeze you out yesterday. We could have saved some money this year, you. <laughs> <laughs> when parents call their kids a son of a bitch, it's always something special. Right. Really is, especially around the holidays. <laughs>